Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. If there's one person who can be described as the outstanding diplomat of his generation, it's Tom Fletcher. Former British ambassador to Beirut, Lebanon, he then transitioned to become a thinker and writer on education, on global development, and on geopolitics. He has recently published a book called Ten Survival Skills for a World in Flux, which is a fascinating manifesto on how we can change the way we educate people and how we plan for the future. So, Tom, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you so much. And thanks for that introduction. I, I'm now worried that uh, any former colleagues listening to this are going to be on the phone to both of us very soon, furious uh, at that description. But I'm, I'm relishing it. You know, I'm prepared to face the, face the music from those, those former <laughs> colleagues. You are, of course, among other things now, the principal of Hartford College in Oxford. So you are in your day job at the heart of what might be called a traditional elite educational environment. Uh, but you've written a book about radical changes to the way we prepare ourselves and particularly how we prepare young people for the life that they're leading. And you start with an amazing story about Zainab, a, a young girl you met in the Bakar Valley in Lebanon. So I wonder if you could just share that with our listeners. Sure. I mean, so Zainab in many ways is, uh, is responsible for this change of direction in my life, really. I went to visit uh, her camp in the Bekaa Valley, you know, well into the Syria co- conflict. You know, a quarter of all the people in Lebanon were Syrian refugees at that time. And, you know, it was the dominant issue in the second half of my posting as ambassador in, in Beirut. And Zainab, she must have been so used to white men turning up in convoys of cars and saying, this is terrible and driving off again. And of course, we were all doing our best to help and we had great aid budgets, great aid colleagues and so on. But there was that sense of futility to so much of what we were doing. So I said to Zainab, you know, tell me about what's going on in your life. And she pointed to Ahmed, her brother, and said, look, he's drawing stick men firing stick guns at each other with stick rockets landing on them. And two years ago, the rockets he was drawing were taking him to the moon. And she said, you know, so what, what does he actually need to learn? And I realized that I didn't have an answer to that question. And it really changed the direction of my life. And I went into work trying to get Syrian kids into school and, and we got hundreds of thousands in, but many more hundreds of thousands are still out of school. And that, in a way, launched this sort of search for answers to an even more difficult question. You know, what, what do we actually need to learn? Because it's not just about getting people into school. It's about making sure that more people learn the right things in the right ways. And so this book is, in a way, an attempt to answer Zainab's question. I went off and asked students and leaders and activists and politicians and business people, what did they wish they'd learned? And what do they think we actually need to teach young people so that they can thrive in this, in this world of instability and flux? One of the things I loved about the book was the, the breadth of the people you talked to. I mean, you, you've 
touched on it there, but it's literally from the Dalai Lama to the, the little girl in the Bacar Valley and everyone in between. And of course, as a diplomat, for, for those that, that don't know your career, as in addition to your work in Lebanon, you, you worked in 10 Downing Street as an advisor to two prime ministers, if I'm right. Or was it three prime ministers? It was actually three. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was such a revolving door of prime ministers in that period. <laughs> I was at the, at, the, at the very end of Tony Blair. And then for the whole, the whole time under Gordon Brown and then for the first year of David Cameron. And it was actually, I think it was a, a, a brief four to five year period when we didn't start any wars or leave any trading blocks. So congratulations. I mean, that in itself is, is, is a mark of a, a successful stint. What that gave you was an opportunity to interact with a remarkable range of world leaders. And they've fed into your book. But of course, it's much more than that. There's, there's insights from academics, thinkers, students and so on. And um, the first 10 chapters of your book are these 10 survival skills. Perhaps you could just sort of quickly uh, characterize what they are and how you feel the reader might sort of gain from them. So actually, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned um, number 10 as well, because that's also a key part of this, this journey for me. And this realization really that education is upstream diplomacy, that you know, I still think of myself as a diplomat. I'm writing this book because I believe that if we do a better job of passing on these sorts of skills, then actually the world will be a safer place. But also the other number 10 dynamic to this is that while I was there, you mentioned these, these world leaders and so on, I collected a book of advice for my son, Charlie, who was you know, five, six at the time. And I went up to all these leaders, Barack Obama, Gorbachev, Tutu, and so on, and asked them to write a page of advice Quite cheeky, really, actually. <laughs> a page of advice for Charlie when he was 14. And he was 14 last December. And I, I guess, you know, that was also a catalyst for the book because I was collecting this extraordinary advice. You know, Barack Obama said, Charlie will either be very rich or very clever, depending on whether he, whether he sells or, or reads the book. And Gorbachev <laughs> wrote two pages about how life looks to someone at the end of their career. Bill Clinton wrote his advice out in draft and then copied it copied it in. So I guess the origins in some ways of this, uh, of this book lie in that, um, lie in that period. But yeah, to, I suppose one way of capturing the 10 chapters and I don't, without, without creating any spoilers that will mean that your listeners decide there's not, there's no need to go and read the book. It divides the survival skills up into head, hand and heart. So head is the essential knowledge you know, what must we pass on from our ancestors to our descendants? The hand is essential skills. And then the heart is the values that the next generation will need to thrive. And I think that for the head, you've got, how do we get from cave paintings to driverless cars in the history of human ingenuity so that we can understand then how to tackle the, the major technological challenges ahead of us? Then there's how do we live with our planet? You know, obviously vital for all the reasons that, that we know. And then there's also... How do we learn to live together throughout history? Because in school, we tend to learn the, the history of the wars that we happen to win. And if you did GCSE, A-level, and degree history like I did, as I think you did, Arthur, didn't you? I, I did all of those, yes. Uh, and I, I pretty much guarantee you did Nazi Germany for all three. Uh, you know, it's very, very much a part of what we teach ourselves, the wars we won. So I think it's more important to, to learn how we live together between those wars, how we developed society and community and, and political systems to stop conflict. Then for the hand, the three things for the hand, one is to learn and keep on learning. 
because this is a generation that will have to keep adapting. They'll have to be very agile. They'll move through they are phases of automation when they're learning new crafts. Second one is looking after our physical, our mental health. How do we do that in the 21st century, including you know living alongside tech? And then the third one is something, and this is an area of real academic um, focus for us, something called global competence, which is how do you develop the cultural antennae to survive in a global world as a citizen of the world, not a citizen of nowhere, as Theresa May sadly put it. You yeah. know, if you're dropped in Singapore or Bahrain or Trinidad and Tobago, how do you adjust to that environment? You know, these are things we can now teach and assess. And then for the heart, it's how do we become more kind, curious and brave? Because we need a generation that will be kind enough to reduce this enormous inequality around us, curious enough to tackle these great technological challenges and political challenges ahead, but also brave because this last decade we've had, which feels so unstable, so uncertain, so much flux, even before Putin decided to invade Ukraine. You know, this is the new normal. This isn't going to suddenly reset at some point. We are faced with decades of this change as a result of this huge technological revolution that we're living through. And we need to be equipped for that. You touched there on the elephant in the room, which is that since you've written the book and even since we, we scheduled this uh, recording, a major interstate war has broken out. Russia has invaded Ukraine. And it feels to me that the diplomatic and geopolitical structures that existed for both of uh, the duration of our careers in government service, but also for much longer, arguably since the end of the Second World War, have really uh, reached the end of the, their utility. So we're, the, the uncertainty and chaos of 2022 is sort of stark and visible to all of us. Knowing what we know now, what is your conclusion on the world of diplomacy that you operated in only you know, five short years ago and compared with the world that we see now? Yeah, I mean, there's a re- there is a real irony there. Ironically as well, you know, when I wrote the first book, Naked Diplomat, it was all about the impact that social media and technology would have on diplomacy. And one month after the paperback came out, we had Donald Trump and we had Brexit and suddenly we saw, you know, new technology and the way that we could communicate completely upending uh, what we thought were political norms. Now, you know, I write a book on, you know, developing what you could call sort of social emotional skills, softer skills, soft power, if you put it in national terms. And then right in the middle of it, you know, I was doing a book launch the other day on soft power in London and in the background, the screens were showing tanks rolling across the border, you know, the real expression of hard power, you know, old school maps and chaps, statecraft from Putin. Yeah. Um, But, you know, of course, I'm going to argue that diplomacy matters more than ever. If you look around the challenges that we face today, including, of course, Putin, if diplomacy didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. But I feel now we have to reinvent it for these challenges. And that includes reinventing the international system. Uh, I I did a review for the UN Secretary General on how the UN could respond to the challenges and opportunities of tech. And it was clear then that the structures were creaking. They were unable to keep up. They were being completely outgunned already by big tech in the conversations about how how we create the norms and rules for the internet age. And the UN is stacked with brilliant people, well-meaning, absolutely committed, dedicated, going towards the sound of gunfire so that we don't have to. 
But the system itself was orphaned by the Trump regime and has been undermined and neglected by the rest of us, vandalized by by Putin, of course. So there was a need to rebuild those structures, rebuild the systems for international cooperation, renew the case for why diplomacy matters. Because ultimately, the great dividing line ahead of us is, do we think that the answer to the 21st century is to, is to coexist or to build a bigger wall? And if the answer is to coexist, then we have to find new creative ways to do that. I think we should try to talk a bit about Russia-Ukraine itself. The justification, so-called, advanced by Vladimir Putin for his invasion, that he's going to denazify a country that has a Jewish president, a thriving Jewish community, and you know, he's confronting Ukrainian aggression when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. You know, none of those things stand up. But what is clear is that Russia, in its relations with the West, with countries such as the UK, EU member states and NATO member states, it is clear that that is an entirely dysfunctional relationship. And I think I'm right in saying that you, you met uh, Putin during your time working Downing Street. I, I doubt you sort of had the opportunity to shoot the breeze. But on the basis of your, your experiences looking at Syria, of course, where we saw the degree to which the Russian military is prepared to stomach uh, extreme civilian casualties, how do we resolve what seems to be a very fundamental challenge about Russia feeling comfortable in a world that is as it is and not necessarily as Russia feels it should be? It's very, very hard. And it's very hard to even, even think around, you know, a few days ahead, let alone more strategically about Russia at the moment as we're watching the bombs fall and it's unthinkable what people are going through on the ground. Of course, we've seen this. We've seen much of this before in Syria. It's not so different. The playbook is not so different. And I think stage one is, is that we should stop analyzing Putin like he's some sort of master strategist. He's not. He, he's an opportunist gangster. He's not, he's not some kind of great chess master who keeps outsmarting us all. He's just willing to outkill us. He's willing to see more civilians die than we are. And that's what happened in, uh, in Syria. And it's now what's happening in, in Ukraine. The great thing is, of course, that the the tectonic plates aren't moving as he anticipated it. He didn't anticipate that Germany would respond with that increase in defense spending, that NATO would be, and Europe would be so coherent. He didn't anticipate the way that public revulsion here and hopefully in Russia will influence the situation on the ground. So I think that itself is an encouragement to us that there is a light at the end of this very, very dark tunnel. I suspect at the end, of course, it ends uh, in diplomacy. You know, when the guns stop, when Putin gets to the point where he can no longer disrupt and break, someone will have to come in and put things back together again. We'll have to negotiate probably with his successor over where Russia's legitimate place is at the table. But in the meantime, we shouldn't waste time, too much time on the things he doesn't fear. And we should really focus on what he fears. And for me, that's domestic opinion turning against him, the realisation that Putin is not Russia and is now acting against Russian interests. Of course, he'll be worried about any sign of change in the Chinese policy. And I think he'll also be worried about any sign that we're finally able to end our disastrous dependence on, on Russian energy. That should be our focus in the meantime. I want to talk a little bit about your day job, uh, principal of Hartford College. It's, you know, it's one of the constituent colleges of Oxford University. 
it's a little bit like being a headmaster, I suppose, but it's also you're, you're a manager, you're a CEO. But the reason I'm sort of raising this is to uh, think about the contrast between your book, which is a book about how we might radically change the way we educate people and the job you hold in an extremely uh, fine university, one that I'm very uh, fond of, but let's face it, is a, is a fairly traditional environment. Is that a tension that you see in, in your sort of daily work? And I suppose the follow-on from that is, what do you think Oxford University might be like 20 years from now? How different might it be? Wow. I mean, that's a great challenge, actually. There probably is a tension there, but the, the, the much of the best work that Oxford does is where there is a tension, where it's not too comfortable, where there is a, an opportunity to challenge to join up different dots that aren't otherwise being joined up. So it's a manageable tension for me. I, you know, in the book, I look at some of the obstacles to the reform, which I'm arguing is, is necessary. And high on that list are national governments who have a stake in the current factory model of education and teaching kids the stuff that will actually be automated uh, in the next decade. But also many businesses which think they can just retrain young people when they get to them. But also, I'm afraid, I've put two groups that I'm very much part of. One is parents, and it's a terrible generalization. And, and I hope parents who are much more enlightened than I am will forgive me for this. But, you know, if you look at school teachers when they try and introduce more creativity, curiosity, kindness in the curriculum, there's always a pushback from parents who worry about exam results. But then that other group that I'm a part of, of course, now, as you say, is, is universities. I don't think universities will drive the change that we need in education because they're so bought into this current model uh, on, that assesses young people's potential on the basis of what they can memorize and learn and, and the things that we can test in exams. So there is a challenge there. Now, of course, I'm looking in small ways to try to help Oxford grapple with those, those issues. And you know, next week, I'll be teaching our first pilot course here called Head, Hand and Hartford, which is trying to develop some of these skills, these survival skills in our students so that young people aren't just learning about anthropology or computer science or English literature, but they're also learning about life, work and citizenship. I think that debate is moving. I suspect Oxford won't be in the vanguard of that debate, but, but Oxford does change and can change. And it, it will be a fascinating point to be having the argument. For people of, of our generation, you and I, Tom, are a similar age, I think, uh, technically uh, Gen X. It's easy for us to sort of be rude about the boomers, but I think everybody recognises that the generations that are currently going through university have had a pretty raw deal. Not only have they uh, had to endure the pandemic at a time of their lives, which was all about being among others and meeting people and having those kinds of experiences, but in a much more fundamental way, they're facing a really tough economic future, which even for us in our generation, we never had anything like that. I mean, I, I, I'm a generation that got through university entirely paid for by the state. You obviously engage with this, this student generation on a daily basis. How do you, uh, do you find that there's a sort of resentment? Do you find that there's a lot of anxiety? How are people facing up to this world that we've, we've slightly handed them on a, on a slightly sort of underwhelming tray, as it were? It's a real challenge. Um, I'm just, I'm, if you'll forgive me, I'm just going to rewind a bit and just also take your challenge on what the university will look like in 2040. I think it will be built around an idea, not a building. And the idea is one of the most important things that we've inherited from our ancestors that we must pass on to 
our descendants. I think it will be more inclusive rather than exclusive. I think we'll stop boasting about the number of people we reject and start thinking about how to get more of our content in front of more people. And I think it will be about lifelong learning to a greater extent rather than university somehow being a sabbatical from life for three or four years. You know, people will, be, will need to be developing themselves over a lifetime and universities can help help with that. That's my hope. On the students now, the thing I love about being around these students, I mean, it's incredibly energizing, but they they have a sense of agency and activism that just wasn't part of uh, of student life for me. I mean, I used to go on I used to go on marches for gay rights, marches about bits of the world, not marches to end debt, but it wasn't so much part of our daily conversation as it is for this generation. The other side of the coin is that yes, they are in many ways more fragile and more anxious uh, than previous generations, or at least they have a vocabulary to express that, which we didn't have. Maybe maybe that was always there, but it just was much less well expressed. Whereas many students now will talk quite openly and regularly about their mental health, about their, their worries about their well-being. And of course, the pandemic has exacerbated that. You know, I'm telling them now that to get on here, you need to spend time together and really make the most of it. But for the last two years, I've been saying you've got to spend time apart. You've got to isolate yourselves. Don't talk to other students. Don't mix. And they've come through that with enormous resilience. But there, there must be scars. You know, I was just chatting to one of our anthropologists and speculating that, you know, in 20 years time, his successors will be doing projects on this student generation, on how they're affected by it. One great positive, by the way, is that they've made very deep friendships because they've been in these household groups of five or six. They've made much more intense, close friendships in many cases than normal student cohorts might do, where you're sort of spread out much more widely. They've met fewer people, but they've deepened those relationships in a way that maybe previous generations didn't. Well, that's something to hold on to. So finally, I want to just sort of, I'm going to be, put you on the spot slightly. You were a British diplomat for, I think, about 15 years. You were then an education activist. You're now combining that role with, with your role um, in a you know, senior position at Oxford University. But we're talking about a world that needs to be remade. And I feel that there must be a place for Tom Fletcher in, back in the diplomatic space. So um, how do you see your own role unfolding in the coming years? I mean, it's, um, I still write diplomat on the landing card, you know, when you're, when you're filling out the form on the plane. I suppose it's diplomat with a small d. And I think, you know, what part of the journey and part of writing this book, and, you know, there's a chapter in the book called How to Find Purpose, and I went through this myself, and it's this effort to try to define yourself less by what your CV says and more by what people will say about you at the end of your life, you know, what's in your obituary and maybe even what's in your eulogy. And for me, this work on education and being in this space, developing young people, that all feels connected to that sense of purpose for me. And it feels very connected to diplomacy and to the work of being a good ancestor and, and, and trying to pass on skills that will leave them better equipped than we have been for this you know, unstable, frightening world that we've left them. So I feel very, very happy where I, where I am at the moment. But, you know, you know, the book is about how people have to move in and out of many different careers and, and take many different paths in the future. And so I guess I'm sort of living that too. I don't know where the next twist or turn will take me. I'll do this job for 10 years. Uh, that's, the, that's the tenure if, if they don't throw me out before that. 
I will then emerge aged 55, I suppose, if I've got my health with probably several decades to work before we get anywhere near pension age at that point. And so who knows where it will lead at that stage. But at the moment, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else but here. And I've always tried to take the most interesting job in front of me. The next project, by the way, alongside the work here is I have a novel coming out in, uh, in July about an ambassador who solves crimes. Oh my so goodness. That's, another, that's another kind of zig when I should be going zag. Excellent. Well, I'm sure it's not based on real events. I am also sure that it will be very fun to read and try and think if there are any slightly familiar settings or characters. You will, you will recognise uh, a lot of them. The, the most outrageous bits are all based on reality and the, the most boring bits are made up. Yeah, brilliant. Well, Tom, it has been fantastic talking to you. Uh, Tom's book, 10 Survival Skills for a World in Flux, is published by HarperCollins and is widely available And Tom, thank you for joining us in The Bunker. Thanks so much, Arthur. Really enjoyed it. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the Bunker Up hashtag? You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.